the Sunday service here at Ananda Village. I'm Naya Swami Parvati. This is Naya Swami Pranava, and we're very happy to have you join us, and especially happy to have all of our guests and visitors, and those who may be here for the first time. I'd like to start by reading from Rays of the One Light, commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita, based on the teachings of Yogananda, but written by Swami Kriyananda. This week, the topic is Intuition is Simple, the Intellect is Complex. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramhansa Yogananda. In the Gospel of St. Mark, chapter 10, we read a passage that Yogananda often quoted. And they brought young children to him that he should touch them. And his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. It has often been noted that a critical attitude tends to paralyze creativity. Good critics, for example, seldom produce works of creative genius. Though their, though their creations may be intellectually clever, the intellect separates, it analyzes, then it puts things together again, piece by piece. Intellect lacks intuition's flow, which descends smoothly like a river from the superconscious. Paramhansa Yogananda described intuition as the soul's power of knowing God. To receive the kingdom of God, Jesus was saying, one must do so with the openness and trust of a little child. Intellectuals may object to this statement, saying, but there must also be discrimination. You wouldn't want a person to be so open-minded that his brains fall out. The truth is, however, that the intellect can be fooled even when it does its best to discriminate wisely. Only intuition is capable of penetrating to the heart of a matter and knowing truth from falsehood. It was the clear understanding of a child, not the elaborately persuaded intellects of his elders, that enabled the child in Hans Christian Andersen's story to cry out in surprise, Why, isn't the we- why isn't the emperor wearing any clothes? <laughs> Therefore it was that Sri Krishna said in the ninth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita, To you, who are free from the carping spirit, I shall now reveal wisdom sublime, grasping it with your mind and perceiving it by intuitive realization, you shall escape the evils of delusion. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. I'd like to welcome you all as well, and not only those watching us online in the non virtual community, but this weekend, 
we've had a retreat in person for some of those virtual community members. So we not only have seen them ethereal, we get to see them physically as well. So it's nice that uh, we have this ability to touch many souls, not only directly as we're doing here in this room, but throughout the world through the Internet. So blessings to you all. I'd like to read to you from Yogananda's book of Prayer Demands, Whispers from Eternity. Open our heart bud to thy love, and let the fragrance of our love escape its prison of ego to merge in thee. On winds of cosmic perception, may our fragrance be swept to thy temple of infinity. O King of all true ambition, throw open wide thy windows everywhere, in the red cloud at sunset, in the rosy glad clouds at dawn, in every charm-clad dream of human hopes. Open the doors of all noble aspirations that lead out from our ego mansions onto the vast panorama of thy bliss. Let our fragrance blow with thy breath, reminding all nature of thy unseen presence. I've always been delighted in this comic strip of Dennis the Menace, and I still remember it after many years, where Dennis is with his parents outside the church, and the minister is there, and the minister speaking to Dennis, said, says to him, do you pray before you eat your meals? And Dennis looks up and says, no, I don't have to. My mom's a good cook. <laughs> that's the innocence that's there that's being emphasized of the childlike quality that Uh, we see things in a certain way. And you can see that in that little humor story, that there's a big missing chunk, that the innocence of a child in in physical childhood hasn't necessarily faced the challenges that come to us as we grow through the years. And so that innocence is more generally, not always, but one of ignorance, of not knowing what the full picture looks like. And so a child can definitely take the world around him and see it in that more trusting, loving way. And that's what we see, certainly with children, with their parents, that ultimate trust is there because that's the nurturing effect that we see in that relationship. But if you look from a saint's perspective and you, you see the lives of saints and you see that innocence is there as well, but it is coming from a different perspective. It's coming from the experience of living through life's challenges and having wisdom, of being certainly engaged in some of those challenging situations, but always centered within, and from that wisdom, retaining innocence. So innocence isn't something that's going to just come and go because if we're feeling good, it's there. If it's not, it's gone. And innocence isn't something that we just have in childhood. The true innocence that we really are relating to and what Jesus is saying about suffer the little children to come unto me, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is really that, that childlike quality that the saints have, that they live more fully, more in that experience of what that is. And that's what faith is, in a sense. You know, there's several words in Sanskrit for the word faith, and one of them is vishvas, V-I-S-V-A-S. And it's a subtle understanding 
of the idea of faith. But Paramahansa Yogananda gave a very interesting and refined um, revelation of what it means. He pointed out that, that that person who has their breath, their feelings, their life in calmness, with calmness, then they can attain that state of faith born of intuition. Nice way to understand it, isn't it? So it's that, that idea that we're not circumscribed by the outward expression, the breath being one of them, that it takes us out there. That it's, um, for most people, their breathing is, is very erratic and uneven, and there's tension in the breath. And the tension there of the breath quickly reflects back into the body. And likewise, then the tension in the body reflects back into the ragged, jagged unevenness of the breath. And feelings, for the feelings to be calm. Again, just as Patanjali says in the Yoga Sutras, the point isn't to neutralize feelings, as sometimes mistakenly understand it, but it's to neutralize the vortices of feeling, and that involves attachment. So if we come to the point where we're able to calm our feelings, that's the same as what Patanjali is saying. We're neutralizing the pulls of our likes and dislikes that go out from that. Well, certainly in a child, quickly the likes and dislikes start to appear. So that's not the part of a child's uh, qualities that is being emphasized here, because those are the childish parts of a child. But the childlike elements are really those that come back to where the influence isn't there from the external pulls of duality. And then life itself, that if life is calm, that we live in that experience where we're not in the disturbances as much. We're not in the waves. And more pointedly, as Patanjali says, we're not in the vortices. Because waves are really just distortion. And you can feel that. Uh, happening with waves. We were just recently down near Santa Barbara and the effects of the hurricane, three hurricanes ago now, uh, Hurricane Marie, um, uh, left a lot of uh, changes in the ocean and the beaches. The beach that we usually went to, the campground, was half gone. It had been all the sand wiped away. And then there was a tremendous amount of seaweed. And because I enjoy body surfing on a boogie board, um, even though the conditions weren't great, I decided I'm going to do this regardless. There was so much seaweed is that when I came out, it was like one point Parby said, you're one of these sea monster kind of things. Um, you know, I was in my swimming suit, you know, it was everywhere. Um, and it was that kind of distortion that didn't allow me to be completely in the experience. And it's like that with life, that the waves distort things. But it's the vortices that come in that really take us into being childish. Literally, that's what happens. Is that we're pulled so much by our likes and dislikes that that vortex or the vortices, those whirlpools of energies that are there with our attachments, the likes and dislikes, they pull us completely off course where we really, at a point, can't even perceive what is right. And so Yogananda says that he that is emotionally restless 
cannot have this state of faith with born of tuition, intuition. Isn't that interesting? That there's just no way for that access to be there because we've put so much of a disturbance around it and we're pulled so much by our attachments into that experience. But think about the energies that we work with on a practical level, how we live our lives, basically. Think about the idea, for instance, of opening up to that intuition, which again is allowing us to live life in a simple way. That we need to have a commitment to really draw the deepest part of who we are into every part of who we are. And that's that firmness, that sense of being grounded, that sense of loyalty that allows us to be clear and strong in moving forward to who we really are. But we have to be cautious that it's an expansive quality. Because we can often take the same energy behind commitment and make it dogmatic. You know, we get pulled into affirming our attachment to that instead of affirming to the flow. So one way of making this very real and practical is the idea that in every moment we're in the experience of offering. That we're offering who we are either into the greater sense of who we are or to the divine. When you think about being flexible, being fluid in life, which we have to be. I mean, just look at what's going on. Um, you know, reading about the Apple uh, that happened and the idea that the smartwatch is going to come out in January. Um, it's a huge shift. And I remember reading this article recently that says, these things are going to be a part of our lives whether you like it or not. Well, they may be a part of other people's lives whether we like it or not, but they don't have to be part of our lives whether we like it or not. We can choose these things, but you just realize the impact of life around us is not going to stand still in its outer expression just because we want it to. There's not a hope in heaven that that'll happen. But remember this from Lahiri Mahashai, Yogananda's guru's guru, that he said, a real emphasis is to find the still point between the incoming breath and the outgoing breath, between the activity of life and the cessation of life, in that stillness within, between those two. And that's what we really find in the deeper techniques of, of meditation. For instance, Kriya is based on that idea that we're coming to that point in between the flows of energy through the breath. But in our flexibility, if we can be open to allow whatever life is tossing us, whether it's a smart watch or whatever, that we're making decisions choosing rather than being, um, by default, just following what's going on. That we are active in our expansive awareness. Because the, the downside of being flexible is that we become just, you know, wishy-washy. We're just sort of being floated around like flotsam in water, that it's not really going in a direction that has meaning. So again, the sense of offering into that experience of being flexible allows us to be real with energy. It's not just whatever. It's whatever in the sense of connecting with the energy flow, but not 
hey, whatever happens is fine. Well, no, because then you're not cooperating with that grace of flow, that, that energy itself. Then if you think about the offering involved in terms of um, self-control or the power of creativity, you know where creativity can take us in a lot of different directions in terms of the energy and the consciousness. But if we tune into it by offering again, we're always expansive in tuning into what that creative flow is happening through us. Not that we're creating that. We're accessing, tuning in to that flow of creativity. That's the power that we've been given in being sentient beings with the creative flow. That we then can find the expression according to who we are. That's part of our karma, where we feel drawn, what's going on for us. But you look at the downside of that commitment of energy that has control and power and creativity. And you can easily see that it becomes domineering. You, you, you send the, the energy out that's dominating the world around you. You're right, and everyone else need to, needs to adhere to that. Well, we don't want that. That isn't really productive. And there are a lot of lonely people out there that think that is what is a good thing to happen. I remember reading something in a business magazine where they do these um, um, portrayals of people and their fashion choices. Uh, But they also had comments in about other aspects. And this one woman, some, I forget what she is, executive in a startup company, was saying, I don't ever want to be subject to other people's influence. Well, good luck. <laughs> the fact that she's saying there is under the influence of someone else's you know, directive. It's, it's just what happens to say that we're isolated and we really choose what we can do. Gets us into that negative side of that strength of the power of control is that it's control of others because we want people to fit into our paradigm. But no, in that offering of being expansive, we're always from the position of inviting. And that innocence of that invitation is seen often as being foolish by people that are more worldly oriented. But the power behind that invitation is really what makes it work on a deeper level in our relationship, even with people that are worldly. That there's some sense of underlying connectedness that's there. And that's what a child has in its life. It feels more that underlying connectedness, that innocence is there because he's only or she has only been around loving people. But again, we're working towards our remembrance that we're saints. And in our case, it's not being innocent in that we trust people so much. We trust the divine within them. I think you've all heard the story one time that Swami Kriyananda, when he was... um, I believe, either going to town or coming back from town here at Ananda Village, and there was someone hitchhiking. And normally he said he didn't pick up hitchhikers, but was um, felt inspired that this was something to pick up. And not only did he give the ride, this person then asked him for some money because he was flat broke. And, um, and he asked for this money from Swami and said, uh, after Swami had given some, that, uh, and don't worry, uh, I'll, I will return it. You can trust me. I, didn't, I don't want you to ever feel your trust undermined for people. And Swami said to him, I don't trust people. 
in the way that you're thinking. I've never felt that's what's important. I've trusted the divine within them. In that way, their behavior won't be disappointing to me. And that trust is really coming out when we're able to control and move into that expansiveness of the heart where we're really feeling, again, that we're offering the love that's flowing through us. It's not our love. It's love that's there. And the more that we open to it, the more that we can then allow it to flow to other people. But that has to be the focus, that it's expansive, that it's uplifting, that it's engaging in an expansive way with the world around us. Because we've all felt when the heart's energy goes into emotions, remember what Yogananda said about um, faith born of intuition. It can't come to someone that's caught in the emotional energies. And so the emotions of the heart is what makes us contractive. It brings us into I, me, mine, that what is mine is mine. And and with relationships, we see that. You know, there's that, uh, I'm not going to date myself or anybody. I've heard of the song. No, I've heard the song. Um, <laughs> that I'll never fall in love again. You know, the heartbreak of going through a painful relationship breakup. And there's that response, I'll never fall in love again because I don't want to be hurt again. Well, really, you're just hurting yourself again by doing that. You're contracting, squeezing the heart even more. The only way to be not caught by the pain of the heart is to expand the heart. To be in that flow that the heart opens enough where it's bigger than the little vortices of exchanges of emotions of the heart. That it's always there being an instrument of love rather than waiting to be loved. And that's really like a child. It's just there with love in, in that innocence of opening up with that. And, and we want to be like that part of the child, to be open with our love. Not that it's our love. It's love itself. And then, as, as Yogananda said, that calmness is important to really be in the experience of intuition, into that connection. And that calmness isn't one of passivity. The danger of being calm to someone, you see this with people that learn to meditate. People are so restless often in their lives that when they start exploring meditation for the first time, it's so different as an experience from the ragged edge of their restlessness is that they actually become more subconscious in meditation. Um, and they, they aren't meditating. And so that's why if you look at the way that Yogananda emphasized how we meditate, he talked about energization. He talked about making sure your eyes are lifted up in meditation. Otherwise, you'll sink into subconsciousness. He talked about body posture. He talked about the energy flowing more freely. He talked about working with these things that allow us when we sit for quiet, still meditation. We don't sink into subconscious. We don't sink into sleep. And so people that think they can just sit and do a technique of inward meditation, if they're going with this great momentum of restlessness, it's just going to top them over. They're just going to capsize. And so this idea that we're really involving our experience of calmness from a dynamic, powerful experience of integrating that energy, 
then we have calmness at the level it is. Otherwise, we get bored. How much longer do I have to meditate? Um, you know, we've all felt that at times. We get restless enough, the calmness isn't there, and we feel, I know I'm supposed to meditate longer, but what does my watch say? And so we're always in this disjointed connectedness. That's the point in our meditation. To simply let go of the structure of meditation and be in the flow of offering. Just say, my meditation now is offering. I'm just being with my true self, with the divine, with the gurus perhaps, with divine mother, whatever aspect that we're tuned into. Let your whole being just be in that offering. This is also what really overcomes the carping spirit. As I said in the reading, the carping spirit is that which doubts, which is critical, which takes things and separates from the unity into the, the, the diverse outer expressions. Now, we all know the diverse expressions are going to happen in duality. That's not the point. The point is to enjoy those expressions from the unity of our oneness with the world around us. And when we feel that, when we commit ourselves to doing that, the carping spirit doesn't have much leverage anymore. You feel uncomfortable when you get into the carping spirit, when you're more in that offering spirit. It just feels like, um, well, it felt like uh, when we were down Santa Barbara, there's oil that's out there in the channel. And you can see the oil rigs that actually pump that oil up. But when hurricanes come, they disturb the oil down at the bottom of the floor of the ocean. And it's everywhere. And not really paying attention the first day, our feet, on the soles of our feet, were covered with tar. And it's like that, that we just get caught. And it feels like, wait a minute. You know, what do we do now? It just isn't working. Life is a bust. Well, that's, again, instead of being caught by the bust effect, The bust is the springboard where we just calmly come back to center. And again, through that offering of who we are, being active in the offering, the offering part is or has to be as activated and more activated than any other part of our lives. It is in that offering that our heart's energy becomes just immersed in devotion. Without that level of activation, the heart will be, by default, often drawn into those emotions again that will become more contractive. It's from those emotional attachments the carping spirit really shines. And so what we want to do is be a shining instrument for that love through our offering. And that is when intuition becomes readily our way of living. We sense that connection from our center, from our inner life, to all the diverse challenges that happen in our lives, through all the different relationships we have. Our intuition is coming from that calmness, that centeredness, that offering, that we're living in that. And as we live in that more, then we come to that experience. In listening to this beautiful song, that Bhagavati and Ramesha sang of Swami Kriyananda's at the beginning of service. There's this one line that says that God loves us without any measure. And then it says in the other uh, phrase that we love God without any reason. 
That's the offering that brings us, like a child, completely into the embrace of divine presence. Let's meditate for a moment.